Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So today I'm actually going to re-air an episode that I recorded with Tina Swithin two years ago, actually. As you may or may not recall, um, or if you follow Tina, you probably know that November is Family Court Awareness Month. And Tina has dedicated the month of November to educating people about the family court system and how corrupt it can be, how unfair it is, and how uneducated most people in the family law system are about domestic violence and uh, all sorts of other things that they really should be (laughs) a lot more educated about. I actually spoke with Susan Guthrie on her podcast recently about just this issue, but I wanted to bring this podcast back up to the surface in honor of Family Court Awareness Month, because I just want there to be more awareness always on the subject. So here is my re-aired conversation with Tina Swithin. Tina, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Family Court Awareness Month. What is that? (laughs) Explain it to us. It's an opportunity for survivors who are, you know, many times suffering in isolation and in silence, and no one understands what they're going through. It's a way for them to raise awareness at a community level, Mm. because what I've discovered over the years is that you know, our community members, our neighbors, our elected local officials, like mayor, city council people, they have no idea that we even have a problem in the family court system, which makes this journey even more isolating. So on our end, you know, we're always promoting what's happening in the family court system, but um, we specifically chose November. Last year, 2020 was the first year that we did this. And we chose November because it dovetails October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And right. those two issues are so intertwined. And there's a lack of, uh, you know, you almost feel like you're operating in the twilight zone in family court because we know as a society what domestic violence is about. It's about power and control. And so there's this disconnect between what we tell survivors, you know, be brave, leave the abuse, you know, it's best for your children if you flee the situation. But then we stick them in the family court system where often the abuse actually escalates because that power and control, that need for power and control doesn't just vanish. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. takes root in the court system and family court becomes the new platform for the abuse. And the children often become the pawns. And many Mm -hmm. survivors find that the abuse they suffered post-separation is actually worse than the abuse they suffered during the relationship. Um, Because at least during the relationship, they could shelter their kids to some degree. But in family court, you're almost penalized for trying to protect your kids. You're seen as, you know, too enmeshed, too involved, all of those labels that we put on survivors. And so it's an opportunity to raise awareness. The abuse opportunity in family court is twofold, right? It's it's giving the abuser a tool. Um, right to manipulate and control. You had a you had a great post this week. I think it was this week. I don't know about like how many times have you been in court 
and at whose behest, who was the, who did the filing, right? And so it does become a, an opportunity for the abuser to become a vexatious litigant, all these things, right? And also the system itself is designed to perpetuate abuse. Like the, 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 the family court system is abusive. Yes. Right. So you've got these two branches of abuse coming at you often through using, as you said, using your children as the tool. Yeah. And, and survivors, you know, when we, we show up and we've had all of these messages to be brave and to leave, and then you get in family court. And the first thing you're hit with is the victim blaming mentality. You know, you chose this person. This is my judge actually said that to me, you know, this isn't my job to fix you. You chose to marry this person and, you know, and then you're both labeled high conflict when, when many times, you know, I'm going to quote Danielle Pollock from the national family violence law center. You know, many times this is a, an abuser and a parent trying to protect their children. That's not conflict. You know, that's right. This is one party conflict. And so we're out here trying to raise awareness on all of these things that survivors face in family court. And I've been attending, um, I think, well, I think we have, we're what, midway through November, I believe we have 225 proclamations from cities and counties all across the country declaring November as Family Court Awareness Month officially, and nine states have now come on board um, to officially declare, you know, November as this is the month that we're going to put a spotlight on what may be the most important branch of our judicial system, because they are literally holding children's lives in their hands. Right. So how do we, how do we, how do we increase that? Like nine States is amazing in a year, right? That's, that's huge. Eight weeks. But like (laughs) we've accomplished that in just the past eight weeks. Um, Okay. yeah. 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 So how do we, how do we, so I think I'm speaking of, both sides here as a professional in the industry um, and also, you know, with my platform and as an individual, um, how do we as a community come together to create more awareness um, and to lobby our state representatives to, to declare this? So we've done most of the work for people. Um, if, if anyone is interested, they can go to our website, which is familycourtawarenessmonth.com. Okay. And there's a tab at the top that says call to action. We've written a template letter. All people have to do is cut and paste it, email their local city council members, their mayor, um, their uh, governor. That's how we've received all nine states now is people, just everyday citizens uh, reaching out, emailing their governor and making this request. Great. And which of the nine states are we? Are we one of them? Did we? We have Arizona, uh-huh. Idaho, Illinois, Maryland, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, West Virginia, and Texas. Hmm. Okay, Gavin Newsom, let's get. <laughs> we are trying for Gavin Newsom. I know that, and, and it's it's been interesting because we have um, huge cities like Chicago, San Francisco, Denver, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And we've had some cities reach out to us and ask us to stop having people email them because they're getting so many requests from people that they can't keep up. Oh, and so don't stop. Don't I'm stop, like, everybody. That's don't success stop. to me. That's right. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Are we annoying you? Right, right, right. <laughs> that may tell you that we have a problem. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So let's talk about the problem. Right. Right. Like, what is the problem? I mean, I have ideas myself. I have a couple of of ideas about what and having been in it. I was never in the family court system with my ex. We, you know, you know, we were able to to get through this, but but we are in it with somebody else. (laughs) You know, one of the problems that I see, right, is that especially if dependency court gets involved, Right. Dependency court seems to me 
to be set up to actually understand a lot of these dynamics, right? That's kind of their mandate, although there are a lot of problems and holes because there's a lot of black and white um, thinking and, and mandating that when, you know, most cases are a little bit more gray and they don't fall into those. But, but regardless, right, they will make a mandate and then they'll close the case in dependency court. And then they'll, right, like once they 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 do their findings, right, and they're like, oh yes, this is this is a problem, and we need to set up, you know, monitored visits, and you know, all of, put all of these systems in place. Then they close out the case. Interesting. And as soon as they close out the case, it moves into family court. Got it. Okay. And family court has the mandate for reunification and like all of this stuff. And they, the the system systematically undoes everything that was decided in dependency court. And then, you know, six months down the road, another incident occurs and you're back in dependency court and the cycle starts over and over again. And so to me, there's a huge disconnect between dependency and family court. Like what the fuck? Right. (laughs) You're not talking to each other. Yeah, there's a huge disconnect between between that, between law enforcement and family court, between CPS or DCSF, whatever you want to call it, and family court. Right. You know, everybody just wants to push it off on the other, and no one is communicating. Uh, you know, it, it's so broken. And I think a huge part of the issue with family court is that there's no regulation. There's no checks and balances. You know, I, I just did an interview at a news station in New York and, and the reporter had spoken to the head judge and the head judge said, oh yeah, you know, if somebody has a problem, they just file an appeal or make a complaint to the judge. And I rolled my eyes and laughed and that got cut out of the interview, but <laughs> it is so true. You know, right. it's BS. There is no way you file a complaint against the judge. Their colleagues are re- viewing that complaint. No, but there's no oversight regulation board that is really regulating. And then an appeal, rarely successful. Who has the money to do that? You know, it's, there's a very small niche of people Mm -hmm. who can afford an appellate attorney and to take things to the next level. And then they take that process so seriously because if, if they overturn a judge's ruling, that goes as a negative mark on the judge's record. So they rarely do that unless the judge is really far out of bounds, but it's, you know, and so, and, and one of the things I've shared recently is I can take my exact same case and walk into 10 different courtrooms and I'm going to have 10 different results just based on that, each judge's own bias and interpretation of the law, all of those things. And that's unacceptable. These are children's lives. It is unacceptable. And yet, and I think that the that the that the bigger disconnect there too is there's a lot they they are very well versed in the quote law, <laughs> right? But they're not versed in mental health right. issues. They have no mental health training. They have, you know, very little, I think, domestic violence training and what that really is. They certainly don't know what know about coercive control. Right. Right. You have somebody and and I think it's it's completely, you know, in evidence by the fact that they will call it a high conflict case when one person is high conflict and the other person is working to protect. Right. This is not absolutely this, you know, and I know my my ex is constantly they're (laughs) constantly trying to get them to mediate. Right. And he's like, yeah, that's not like we like that is not something that is possible. Right. With somebody right. who has extreme mental illness, who has been arrested multiple times, right? Like, right. this is not someone that I'm mediating right. with. And to do no. so is further victimization. Absolutely. And if you don't present well because you are a victim and you do have trauma and PTSD, then you are labeled as the problem. And that's one of the things that we're working really hard to raise awareness, uh, you know, at a community level. And I've been attending these city council meetings all over the country uh, for weeks now. Um, Last week, I did 11 city council meetings in one day from 5 5 a.m. until about 9 
9 p.m. at night, just one after another. And these mayors and city council people, when I'm educating them on the fact that very few states have any required training for family court judges, they're looking at you sideways, you know, for for domestic violence, for trauma. We don't have trauma informed, uh, let alone, you know, any of it. But, you know, here in California, for example, um, it is a mere suggestion that judges, I believe it's three hours of domestic violence training uh, within their first year of being on the bench. And it's not a requirement, it's a suggestion. That is mind blowing to me. That would be like taking a an orthopedic surgeon and say, hey, we're gonna put you on a rotation in the cardiology unit uh, for two years with no training on how to do surgery on the heart. And we're just gonna hope it goes well. You know, these are people who are put on the bench, they may have come from, you know, doing estate law, and all of a sudden they're put into family court, they don't want to be there, that's considered the bottom of the barrel in the court system. So they're not happy about being in family court, and they have zero training in domestic violence, yet they're deciding the the fate of a child. Um, And quite sometimes it truly is the fate of a child, you know, they're uh, one of the the statistics that we're sharing with people is there are um, 811 children who have been murdered since 2008 by separating or divorcing parents or caregivers, like step parents, things like that. And 111 of those are children who their their protective parent pled with the court, begged the court to protect them, told the court that this other person was dangerous and the court failed. So 111 children's lives lost and it was preventable. So horrifying. It's so horrifying. I want to go back to what you said about how, how judges become family law judges. I think that's actually a really important step in this process, right? To look at, to examine, right? right? And it's different everywhere. You know, that's the thing, you know, some are appointed, some are just on rotation. They've been in another, um, you know, part of the law and they just get moved in for a two-year stint. Uh, It's different state by state. Like what? Like, like literally what? Like, yeah. why? I mean, how would you like, I'm just thinking about like, okay, attorneys, right? If, if you're hiring an attorney, you have to have a family law attorney. You're not going to take legal advice from an estate, you know, about your divorce or child custody issues from an estate attorney, right. but yet this estate attorney is going to end up on the family court bench as a judge. Very well could be as part of a rotation. Right. Right. And like, and we are doing rounds. And I've heard from, you know, people inside the court system that sometimes as punishment, if a judge messes up in criminal court or another court, they get moved to family court as punishment. As punishment. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's, it's as if you're in a hospital, right. And you've got your residents doing rounds without the surgical like the head who's actually training you, right? Right. (laughs) Just shoving you on rounds. So you're actually in charge of the treatment of urology this week, even without, without a mentor, without someone who's actually a professional urologist, you're just like going to wing it. Yeah. And so of course, personal biases come into this. Absolutely. Of course they do. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, we see it, um, The COVID, you know, COVID has been an absolute blatant in your face, you know, watching different, different perspectives and opinions on COVID and now vaccines, you know, you can tell what a judge feels based on what they're ordering. And, um, it's, uh, you know, in that, that part of the ballot, you know, when we're voting, so many people just skim right past the judge and just check off whichever one is of their own political party. And that, you know, you are, if you do that, you are putting these people into office when they may not, they sh- maybe they shouldn't be in office. Really, that is an area. I have an example from just a few years ago here in my county. Um, there was a judge running for office. I started looking through his social media 
and his campaign manager's social media. His campaign manager had a 50-50 parenting custody father's rights graphic on his profile picture. So I started blasting it publicly that, you know, and we can't have judges in there. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not for parental rights at all. I'm pro-child. I don't care what your gender. I think that child safety yep. should trump yep. your rights as a parent. <laughs> no um, matter what, exactly. sense, no matter, but it's right. not happening. No, it's not. Well, no. And I think, yeah. So we have to lean in, you know, when you get that ballot in the mail, find out who these judges are. Don't just check boxes because kids' lives are on the line. That's right. And so, and one of the ways you can do that, I mean, I don't know what you recommend, but I, you know, I have, I have friends who are attorneys or, and judges, right? And I ask them and they are, they know, they know what their people, you know, what their colleagues are up to. So like, ask your attorney friends, ask your judge friends. If you don't have any, ask your friends. Like I have a couple of friends that I rely on every election cycle that I know their, um, you know, I know their political leanings. I trust them. And I say, all right, who am I voting for, for these judges? Because I don't, I don't know. Right. And then I will start to look a little bit more deeply at each one based on these lists, but like it is, it's a lot for, to expect the general populace to actually know or understand. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Whenever I hear about a protective mom struggling to co-parent with an ex whose alcohol misuse endangers the child, I always recommend Soberlink. If you've been listening for a while, you know how much I love Soberlink. For those of you who are new, welcome and listen up. Soberlink is an alcohol monitoring system that is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide concrete proof that they're not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink uses facial recognition, and it's the only alcohol monitoring system that analyzes and approves or declines identity in real time, meaning that you'll be immediately notified if your co-parent attempts to have someone else use the device. Soberlink also has some of the most high-tech tamper-resistant features on the market, which prevents tampering with the device itself or trying to use alternate air sources like a balloon or an air pump. So basically, any way someone can think of to cheat the system, Soberlink can catch. If someone tests positive for alcohol, Soberlink requires additional tests to confirm the non-compliant results. If a positive test happens, the system's retest cycle begins, allowing the co-parent to retest every 15 minutes, up to six times. Upon request from their in-house compliance department, a drinking evaluation is delivered to you to confirm the non-compliant result. Soberlink has two programs. There's a parenting time only program, and then there's a daily testing program. Both programs operate using scheduled testing. So for example, a testing schedule might be that you ask the co-parent to test before their parenting time and then during parenting time. And this helps you feel confident that your co-parent is parenting sober. And if there is a positive test result, you can write into your agreement that parenting time will be reevaluated. Soberlink's reports are admissible in court. And in fact, Soberlink is recommended by courts in all 50 states and in Canada. If you have any concerns about your child's safety while with the other parent, there is no better way than Soberlink to put your mind at ease. For an exclusive $50 off of your device and to download the resource I created with Soberlink, Checklist for a High Conflict Divorce, visit www.soberlink.com DSG. And now back to our show. Tina, what are some of the changes that you want to see? Do you have like a checklist <laughs> or is it like a tome? Is it... <laughs> It's never going to happen, but we need judicial accountability. You know, there's no, they have immunity. So they make a decision. You know, one of the things I've been sharing is in my case, for six years, my story never changed. My kids are unsafe. My kids are unsafe. Six years later, two custody evaluations, minors counsel, all of this, they finally go, oh, wow, her kids are unsafe. Let's protect them. Okay, so, uh, you know, validation, getting being validated in the family court system 
you have a six years of trauma to get to that point and you don't get an apology. No, you know, there's no recourse. I can, I can't go, you know, sue someone or, you know, try to hold them accountable. It's just your case number. That's my own personal perspective. That's never going, you know, we're never going to get that in this present day court system. But what I would like to see is required uh, training, um, domestic violence, trauma, and, and forcing them to actually utilize research that is available. The research that Joan Meyer is putting out through the National Family Violence Law Center, the Santa Clara University study that talks about narcissism in family court and that it only takes one person to create a high conflict situation. And that study is fascinating because, and, and it's a gut punch because in that study, they interviewed an attorney who I believe had been practicing for 30 years. And he was baffled um, that this guy who was a diagnosed narcissist, when they finally gave him everything he wanted, he still wasn't satisfied. And so, but the attorney Shocking. was dumbfounded <laughs> by this. And I'm like, how could you work in this industry and not see this? Um, That's right. Because it's as clear as day to those of us who have had personal experience. So we need to be using the research that's currently available, whether, you know, the ACE study, Joan Meyer's work, Santa Clara University, there's some solid research out there that would help them to prioritize child safety. Mm. So good, right? And have this training. God, it was so profound and so clear to all of us and so recent. I think about Gabby Petito. Yeah. And you know how how those of us who are trained in this watched that Moab traffic stop and we saw all the signs. Absolutely. But because the police were not trained. In, I mean, there was there was one that was like vague. Like, yeah, like, right. But because they weren't trained, they made all the wrong calls. Yep. And th- I don't think there is a clearer example in recent history because we have the tape. Yes. But but it's so, but it's also interesting that people who are not trained in this watch that tape and see exactly what the cops saw. Right. Absolutely. He's hysterical. She's got the mental health problems. She's self-identifying. He's perfectly calm. Obviously, she's the crazy one. And you can see it playing out in comment, you know, commentary. But those of us who were trained looked at that and went, oh my God, this is a woman who's in trouble. Right. And we're so triggered. I was so triggered by that. So triggered. Um, So triggered. Yep. His calm. He's perfectly calm, you know. Getting a feed off of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is what we need. You know, we, I mean, I take it further. We need, I I think we need this kind of training across the board for um, law enforcement all across the country, which has, has doubled the difficulty when so many law enforcement officers are actually domestic abusers. So there's that. Right. No, that's yeah. Another Joan Meyer plug, you know, the national family violence law center, they just created a two day intensive training with 10 of the top experts from around the country. They just launched this um, as a result of Julie's law in Colorado, which requires custody evaluators to have a certain level of training to do that, which, you know, again, again, we've got mental health professionals. And I, I talked to psychologists who say we never receive training on cluster B disorders, borderline narcissism, you know, you skim right past it. You read the textbook definition. You don't read how that type of personality disorder um, has an effect in interpersonal relationships or post-separation. There's no, you know, even mental health professionals um, don't get this unless they've personally experienced it or they've gone deep in this as an area of study. And so, you know, having this training that they've just come out with for for Julie's Law in Colorado, uh, Marlene McLean's daughter, I hope they take that and expand that law state by state, but it should be for every 
judge every, you know, and one of the things I've talked to um, people who do legislation and policy, and it's interesting because they start off with one solid piece of legislation, a bill that they try to get um, through, and then it gets whittled down, you know, and one of the sticking points that they come up against is judges do not want mandated training. That's the area of the legislation. (laughs) Right. Thank you. you. That they end up scrubbing out because judges don't want that put in there. And they're making the highest decisions. Right. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I just um, did a presentation to my local county board of supervisors here in San Luis Obispo. And I called out my local system for failing me, for failing so many others. And one of my calls to action for them is I don't care what the state of California mandates for training. You should, you can do better. You can take it upon yourselves. Mm -hmm to create a training program. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the state requires. Right. You should right. want to do better. Right. Exactly. Because children are dying. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the bottom, yeah. like in the most extreme cases, women and children in particular are dying. There's three missing children that I know of right now that their moms are putting out pleas for, you know, it's just. And if we're not dying, we're traumatized traumatized. Absolutely. Right? The level of trauma is astounding. Lifelong. Mm-hmm. It, it will literally, my, I remember my daughter's therapist um, saying to my husband, because I'm remarried, mm-hmm. you live in a home with PTSD landmines everywhere. Right. Absolutely. That is your reality. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I want to go back to this idea that about mental health professionals not, not having you know, I, I I encounter this all the time in my work with my clients, right? Just bad therapists. Yeah. I mean, just bad therapists, right? And therapists who don't have advanced training, right? They'll go through, there are so many programs, therapy programs that are like factories. They're churning out um, therapists every, you know, uh, dozens of them every semester, does like all across the country, right? Yeah. <laughs> and just because someone has completed their, you know, basic training as a therapist doesn't make them a good therapist, doesn't make them have advanced training in the thing that we need them to have, right? And I have an example of this that is really terrifying where we had a um, a psyche valve done on someone who, and this was the, the first psyche valve, which was in... I can't remember what year, 2010, 2012, 2012 or 13. And this was by a forensic psychiatrist. So this is someone who has advanced training in cluster B personalities. Like she was very, very clear on all of this stuff and diagnosed this person as um, psychotic, like actually use the word psychotic diagnostically. Um, with, you know, mixed personality disorders, including antisocial, narcissistic, uh, and borderline and is, you know, an incapable of being treated by like psych, by psychotropic medications, right. Also urging the court to take her threats of homicide and suicide very seriously, which DCFS did. And dependency court did. And then again, case got closed, moved to family court. And then, oh, yeah, but she's a mom. So she does. She needs to have blah, blah, blah. And also the psyche valves expire. Yeah. Two years. I know it's usually they're outdated after two years. Well, and but here's the thing. Right. And again, this is where the black and white thing is so, so fucked up, because look, if you're diagnosed with depression or anxiety or PTSD, it should expire after two years given treatment because they want to give them the opportunity to heal. When the psyche valve says that there is no treatment available, there is no chance of this person getting better. Why should that expire? So then a few years later, they go for another psyche valve with someone that, by the way, the psychotic person chose, (laughs) right? who doesn't have advanced training in any of these things. Right. And she's wonderful. Yeah. And she's I was going to say, I can predict where this yep. is going. Yep. Totally yeah. fine. Yeah. Totally yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's the hard part that I see with psyche valves is, you know, and, and I've talked to several psychologists who say we're actually trained never to put down a cluster B diagnosis because it's a legal and personal liability, uh, professional liability. Um, so what they do is they write high narcissistic traits, high antisocial traits. So to, to get a diagnosis like the one you just described is the rare unicorn with sparkles and glitter. That doesn't happen. Right. To get that and then say she's all better now. I mean, that's mind blowing. Mind blowing. I mean, this case has, this case is a very, very, very specific case that has sort of blown the lids off of men in, in, in our area in LA. Really, like I've had social workers say, I like this is a lifetime movie and I actually don't want to evaluate this person because I'm actually scared of being alone in a room with right. her. Right. Like, right. like we're talking right. like that. And so, you know, but, but we're going to send kids to her, <laughs> but yet we're going to have to be okay with her having unmonitored custodial parenting time. Right. And that, you know, and that's another issue with the psyche valves. Even if you are that rare glittery unicorn that, you know, you do get a solid diagnosis, there's no research and no studies to show that that type of person is dangerous around children. So you, I, I watch people get right. once in a while, a diagnosis of antisocial or mm -hmm. NPD and still get 50, 50 custody because they haven't harmed the kid. Well, we see it all the time, right? Like, oh, well, he hit you. Take the chance. Yeah. Right. He hit you, but he's never hit the kids. So, right. and it's like, well, yes. And then you remove me as the lightning rod, right? Yeah. When I'm, when, and I see this all the time with my clients where when they leave, right, they are removing themselves as being the absorber of the rage um, and yeah. the anger or the personality disorder or whatever. And an abuser has to abuse. Like period, end of story, right? An abuser abuses because they're abusive and they have to abuse. And when you remove yourself from being the target, they have to find a new target. And if they haven't found a new supply in a new partner, you know, often it's going to be the children. And so what that they yeah. haven't done it to the children in the past. Right. And because they want to use the children to hurt the healthy parents, so they're going to target the kids, whether it's psychological, emotional, physical, sexual, whatever it is, the, those children are the way to maintain that control and that power and to hurt, you know, the other parents. Right. So I, the kids are even more at risk. Now, I just want to be really clear that I don't think either one of us is saying that we should stay in unhealthy, abusive, toxic marriages in no. order to protect our children. Absolutely not. I'm no, and I, I talk about that often and I know you do too. It's, you know, I still believe even with the reality of our present day court system that our children have a better chance at coming through this and, and, you know, being healthy members of society for us to leave and to show them, even if it's 50% of the parenting time to model what healthy looks like and to fill their toolbox um, rather than staying in that situation and having children grow up thinking this is what love is. This is what, right. you know, normal married life is. I'm still a huge I would do it even with everything I've been through. I would still make the same choice to leave because, a, yeah, mo the most heartbreaking emails I get on any given day are from the women who stayed. <laughs> and because there were no resources, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and, and they didn't know what we know now, right. and they stayed. And now their children have gone on to repeat the cycle either as the abuser or the abused. And those emails are gutting for me Absolutely. to read. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I so agree. And this is what I always say is that when you leave and you create a healthy, you know, um, safe place for your children to land, you give them the gift of perspective, right? right? You right. give them the gift to start to notice that things feel one way here and they feel different over there. 
and that like, and they can start to choose once they, when they dis- discern and differentiate between the two experiences. And if they're in the toxicity all the time, they never get that gift of perspective. Right. I love that. I love that descriptor because it's so powerful and it's so true. Yeah, so true. So, all right. So family court awareness month. So art. So what is your, what is your goal and mission? It's to spend the month of November educating the judges, city councils, mayors, governors on the the problems. Right. Forming connections, creating um, allies at a community level, um, both for survivors and for us to have connections. Um, You know, our goal is also to make connections with domestic violence agencies and shelters and and coming together. And because, you know, I, I know when I left the women's shelter and it's the story I hear from so many others, you leave, they don't tell you what's coming next. You just think, oh, cool, I'm safe. Everything's going to be good now. They told me so. Right. And so, you know, we have to, it doesn't just end when the, you know, we have to find out ways to bridge that disconnect. And most of those domestic violence advocates actually have the ears of the judge and the local family court system. They have those connections. Okay. And so, you know, for me, for our organization, connecting with them and saying, how can we start talking to these judges? I mean, I'll donate my hours every single week for the rest of my life for free if a judge will get on a Zoom call with me and and let me share, you know, what I see, my own personal story, um, you know, the the education, the research that they need. um, That would be my life goal is to form those connections. But for so many of us out here working in family court advocacy, you know, we're yelling, uh, you know, our messages to survivors who get it because they're living it and to other um, advocates. We're all amplifying each other's messages, but we're missing this whole community level underneath. And, you know, going through this, when you do feel so isolated and, you know, I would never try to tell my story to my next door neighbor who lives a very normal vanilla life because they're going to look at me sideways and wonder, what are you talking about? We need to educate them that your son's fourth grade teacher is probably going through this or your you know, niece or whatever. And so really bridging all of these disconnects in a variety of ways. And then, you know, for me, it, my mission has always been supporting those who, who are out there um, making legislative change and helping to amplify their messages and send in the troops um, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. to reach out to their elected officials when the green light is given. Like now we need all hands on deck to email this, you know, particular um you know, Senator and, and let your voice be heard. You know, it's a lot of it is mobilizing, mobilizing advocates and survivors to support the efforts that are in place. And every time one of these laws gets passed, um, it, you know, it's easier to pass it in other states. And so we're starting to see progress And, uh, you know, we have Senator Dave Min here in California and Senator Susan Rubio, you know, those two and Assemblywoman Blanca Rubio, they are they get it Mm. at a level that most don't um, personal experience and knowledge. Um, But, you know, we need more like them out there fighting for us and getting this new legislation through. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I feel like. At the end of the day, there are very few people um, who haven't been touched by this in some way, shape, or form. I think it is, it's tapping into the personal experience, understanding that, like, oh no, this isn't an other thing. This is, you know, your sister just went through this. You're right. And and also recognizing that often the the men in power shall we say, right? Because how many of these judges are men? Um, A vast majority, right? They're actually upholding a system that works really well for them. And maybe they don't particularly want uh, training or legislation that works against them and their interests. It's an industry. 
It is absolutely an industry <laughs> with a lot of people making a lot of money. And, um, you know, I just watched it in Pennsylvania. They're trying to get Caden's law passed. And, you know, in my humble opinion, one of the main, you know, naysayers who's going up and trying to shut this bill down probably has some personal interest in uh, the industry where he's making money and uh, Mm. this would affect his bottom line. And so there's so much, you know, corruption and collusion and, and just people's put me out of business. That's what I say all me the time. Too. I would love, <laughs> me yeah, too. I, I would love to find. I will go back to PR. I will go back to. I would doing what marketing. I love. I you know. I put me out of business. I would love for someone to. That's. I say the same thing all the time. I would love to be put out of business, but I think you and I are going to be doing this work for a really long time, Tina. <laughs> we are. Yeah, and it, you know, and I and I'm grateful that um, you know, when we come through this, you know, giving other people a hand up and and sharing stories and the more we keep talking about these things, the more empowered and brave people feel and the more voices, you know, that start to others feel brave and share. And then you start to realize this is a huge, it's a crisis. It absolutely is. It is. So, okay. So, so for women who are getting out, who are about to enter into the family court system. Is there a checklist? Is there, I mean, uh, your writings obviously and your book and, but like, I just, I almost, I want like, I want a manual to be like here, (laughs) here's what you can expect. And here's the language that you need to use in your, in your own defense, right. Or in your ad, you know, advocating for yourself. Right. I'm actually, um, I always, one of my phrases, I always say, there's no rule book, but I'm writing one. I'm actually writing a book and it's going to be, you know, kind of now that I've had this perspective, I've written my own personal story. I've written, you know, the communication, how to communicate with these types of people. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, and the, the piece that so many people miss because they are in a state of trauma is that you are a business transaction to the court. Right. And it's hard to get into that strategy mindset and to think of it that way because nature intended for you to protect your babies and the court system has tied your hands and said, say, sorry, you can't. Um, you have to, the, the sooner you can, you know, it's radical acceptance, it's managing your expectations and it's getting into that strategy mindset, you know, learning to document the importance of documentation. That's one of the things that I teach in my online course is, you know, and, and people get so, you know, hopeless because they say I'm documenting nobody's paying attention. 99% of my documentation has never seen the light of day, but that 1% is what protected my kids. And I, you know, you document everything Mm -hmm. and then you document more, right? You know, and so, you know, it's, but, but that strategy mindset of these are business transactions. You're just a case number. This isn't personal to them. And people have to remember that the judge doesn't know either of you. And for all the judge knows you are the problem. That's right. That's right. It's the, it's the, you know, the right, exactly, exactly. And it, and it just takes one moment for them to sort of figure it out. Right. Yeah. But that's, that's a crapshoot. Yeah, it's it's very much a marathon. And, you know, you're both under a microscope. And that one thing you put in writing in a moment of, you know, anger is going to be the thing that's blown up in the courtroom for everybody to see. And that's how they're going to form their opinion of you. And, you know, I... There's times I hate my job. I'm telling people who have severe trauma, you know, first you need a therapist, you need a support system, but we have to figure out how to compartmentalize this because you walk into that system, you're going to get chewed up and spit out. And that's screwed up that I have to tell anybody that, that they have to put on their strategy hat Mm -hmm. when they're in a state of trauma. It's horrible. That's the part of my work I hate. It is. And it's, it's, but it's also the part that protects them, right? To be, and that's not to say, put your, put your trauma away in a suitcase and bury it. It's process your trauma with a trauma-informed therapist who specializes in all of this. And then also 
know that you are going into a business transaction and you need to put your strategic hat on and that's like, and you're leave your emotions at the door. Right. Right. Oh, and I've been, I, you know, I've shared, I, there have been times where I leave that courtroom, even when the judge made a decision that put my children in danger. I thank that judge, you know, thank you for your time, your honor. I walk out of the courtroom and I have crumbled on the floor in the bathroom in the courthouse. You know, I have been fetal position in the backseat of my car, you know, after a court date. And it's, you know, it's, not an easy journey, you know, finding support while you're going through these things is critical because if you weren't affected by it, if you aren't, you know, fetal position somewhere at some time, I'd want to check your pulse. Right. Because, <laughs> right. Then we have a problem, you know, right. Then there's yeah, some dissociation and, happening and we probably right. <laughs> get you some help. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So Tina, where can people find more information about family court awareness month? And is there anything else you want people to know about it? Um, where we have Press releases on our website. There's a press room. If you, if your uh, city, county, or state is on our list where they have proclaimed November as Family Court Awareness Month, go to the press room, pull our recent press release, send it to all of your local media. Um, I will donate my time talking to them, trying to raise awareness in your community um, to put this on the map mm-hmm. and and to start these important conversations because I'm a firm believer that. The first step towards change is creating awareness that we have a problem. And so that's really our entire goal with this. Um, so familycourtawarenessmonth.com, you can look at you know what we did last year, what we're doing this year, see if your city or state is on the map. It's not too late to reach out to your mayor for, you know, they could even do 2022 um, right. or 2023, whatever it is. You know, this is an evergreen type of situation. Great. Yeah. So familycourtawarenessmonth.com is yes. where all of the information is. And also all over Tina's Instagram. <laughs> yes, yes. And and my my main um platform is onemomsbattle.com and that's my Instagram and everything else also you can connect with me over there. Tina, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. Thank you, Kate. Oh my goodness, so much work to do. So much, but we're we're doing it. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.